I'm your host. Welcome you to the July 7, 2015 edition of the show. Pastor Mark Davis of the Newport Beach St. Mark Presbyterian Church brings some very specific religious practices close to home. He'll examine race, same-sex inclusiveness, if we can get to that, but for sure, climate change and what the Pope had to say in his encyclical letter. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show. So uh, Pope St. Francis is in South America. His Holiness Dalai Lama is in town. And as our good fortune would have it, Pastor Mark Davis of the Newport Beach St. Mark Presbyterian Church is here at the KUCI radio station. Pastor Mark will be my guest for the whole hour. His church, St. Mark Presbyterian, maintains and continues to grow a membership of congregants from Orange County, as well as Los Angeles and Riverside counties. Their mission of social justice and inclusivity are practices that will be evident in his analysis of the issues of the day. Pastor Mark is part of the Generative Catalyst Team at the Los Ranchos Presbytery, the Orange County Regional Governing Body of the Presbyterian Church USA. As well, he represents St. Mark on the Newport Mesa Interfaith Coalition. Prior to his December 2013 appointment at St. Mark Presbyterian Church, Mark Davis was pastor at the Heartland Presbyterian Church near Des Moines, Iowa. He earned his Bachelor of Arts in Religion from Emmanuel College School of Christian Ministries in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and was ordained in 1996 after completing his Doctor of Philosophy in Theology, Ethics, and Culture from the University of Iowa and a Doctor of Ministry from Union Presbyterian Seminary in Virginia. He is the author of two books talking about evangelism and Left Behind and Loving It, and he blogs regularly at Left Behind and Loving It Blogspot. Uh, Pastor Mark is also a monthly contributor to the Politics of Scripture blog at politicaltheology.com forward slash blog for you want to get most of the URL. And in addition to sermons and summits, and he contributes at sessions as a singer and a saxophonist with St. Mark's Synergize Trio. He's penned a few songs and a Christmas pageant as well. He joins me in studio to reflect on race, climate change, and we hope same-sex inclusiveness, all worth our time as, uh, as they remain works in progress in our time. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Pastor Mark Davis. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, let's turn first to Charleston, South Carolina, reeling from the massacre that took place in a church. On a visceral level and a theological level, what this assault has felt for you in real time then and now to this day? Sure. Well, I will tell you that uh, when I woke up to the news of the Charleston massacre right after it happened, um, it was one of those events that just caused me to stop and change everything. And by that I mean I had already 
put together an order of worship for the next Sunday. I had already written the prayers. I had already figured out the direction of the sermon. And that news caused me to stop and rethink, what, what do we need to hear? What must be said in a moment like this for people of faith? Especially those of us who live so far away from Charleston, um, who don't have perhaps any personal connection to the event that happened there. What must be said? And it seemed very important to me to keep both the personal and the, um, the situation, the context in mind. We changed our prayers somewhat. We, we looked inside. We started thinking systemically about how we benefit from racism and live toward racism. Um, as well as gun violence and the, the, the silence we often have around gun violence. It, it kind of episodically bursts forth whenever there's a massacre and then it goes back into silence. We tried to reckon with that throughout the sermon and throughout the worship service. Well, bringing down the flag is a civic gesture, but don't we have our work cut out for us to recognize more openly the much deeper socioeconomic divisions. We do, and, and that's been um, particularly my uh, input in some of the conversations about race that I've been part of lately. Um, shortly after the Ferguson riots and uh, the events in Ferguson began to, to take hold of the nation's consciousness, I reached out to an African-American friend of mine named Chinetta Goodjoin, who is also a Presbyterian pastor. And I just asked, you know, what, what can we do here now in our context to start laying the groundwork for a better way of addressing racial harmony, racial tension, racial realities? And um, Chinetta and I began to talk, and, and we gathered another group of people around us, and, and we started what she calls a think tank about race relationships. And my input in that has been a chastened one, because I think it is incredibly necessary to talk about white privilege whenever we talk about race relations in the United States. And I've been particularly... Um, influenced by the work of Cynthia Harvey, her, her book called Dear White Christians, which talks about um, how the dream that many progressive white Christians have had of the beloved community um, that Dr. Martin Luther King upheld also has to walk through the, the harder path of reparations and reckoning with history. And that's been a... Um, that's been an important part of our conversation. And I want to hasten to add the whole title, which talks about the, the, the charge that Jennifer Harvey's talking about. It's Dear White Christians for Those Still Longing for Racial Reconciliation. So there's those that are still longing and there's that don't know they're longing yet. So that there's a, a, a larger sample size that uh, probably is difficult to get on board with. Uh, becoming exposed to a book like this, but it's but this is a very part of the very nuanced sort of uh, activation on your part um, in dealing with the uh, the of white privilege. That That's right, and, and it could be very me easily misunderstood. Um, 
Jennifer Harvey nor I are arguing against racial reconciliation by any means. The question is, um, can we achieve racial reconciliation by just saying, well, let's all just live together and hold hands and sing the Barney song and get along? Or do we need to address some systemic and historic events uh, that have brought us to the context to where our racial interaction can be so uh, inflammatory? Um, I like the analogy. Yeah. Sometimes you can't tell if there's inflammation. (laughs) You know, it's sort of insidious and inflammatory. It'll kill you. Well, and 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 it's because there's something... um, something toxic underneath the surface that needs to be brought out. Um, and Dr. King held this beautiful vision of racial harmony. Uh, the phrase, the beloved community, was a, a favored phrase of his and became a, a byword among many progressive white persons, as, as well as many persons of goodwill. And the idea was that we just need to gather together and, and accept one another as we are, there were even movements among some of the mainline churches, particularly, to close some churches and start to integrate churches. The problem is that largely they closed the churches that were populated mostly by people of color and integrated them into the larger churches that were populated mostly by white people. And the language, the liturgy, the, the music, you know, was all music that was more comfortable for white congregations than for some of the African Americans, and they lost something very powerful. And it it was nobody's intention. It certainly wasn't ill-willed. It was really after this beautiful vision of the community being together. But what it lost was the particularity that is so important to the African-American community and culture. And so striving for this ideal of the beloved community, it kind of wiped out some of the particularity of the African-American churches that had developed over the years and uh, was unsustainable. Um, So Dr. King was known for saying, you know, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, and white liberals take that with a lot of guilt. Like, oh, you know, this is our shame. We should all integrate our churches. But I like to turn to the theologians Hall and Oates when they once ask, if two become one, tell me who is the one they become. They weren't really theologians, you understand. No, I no, no, not those guys. But <laughs> but and I wanna say among those cultural aspects that you're alluding to, I'm thinking myself, having lived in the South for East for about six years, that callback response that's part of the African American cultural landscape, a uh, church cultural landscape, that I as short a time as that was, I was forever changed as to how I was in an audience, whether it was in a church or in other settings, like cultural ones, that the callback response brings the audience into a more active role in the sermon, in the performance, both of which can converge those two. And so uh, to, to see something as important as that, among other features, go away in a white congregation is it's a kind of a cultural fratricide. Well, that's right. So they weren't just idiosyncrasies that had been picked up along the way. They were meaningful practices and habits that, that spoke a lot to the participatory identity that they brought into worship. And um, Better said, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And, 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 you know, that's just one example of what happened when uh, shooting for the notion of 
of the universal church and the beloved community, what got lost along the way was the particularity. And particularity is important. So, for example, um, when we talk today about racial harmony and becoming the beloved community, I, I, I said at a, at a talk at, a, um, at an African-American congregation recently. In Orange County? Yes. Okay. And um, I, that, you know, we talk about being united in brotherhood and sisterhood. But when one of us goes home to a, to a fairly nice home in an s- area that's got a great school system where the police officers are generally friendly and the politicians curry our favor, and another one of us goes to an area that's been redlined over the years, and the school systems are badly underserved, and the, the population is suspected by law enforcement and over-penalized by the justice system and ignored by the political system. You know, to what sense are we really, you know, experiencing the brotherhood or sisterhood of all? Um, we have to take that, that particularity very seriously and address it, address it as, as part of the context in which we talk about our universal ideals. So that, that's, a, that's going to be a series of hard conversations, and it's going to take folks like me who are white and, and largely put us on the defensive and feel like we're being victims of reverse discrimination or we're being targeted as, as blamed or something like that. But in fact, it's that hard conversation we have to have to recognize the reality of the situation. And um, that's, that's the language I'm trying to bring to the interracial conversations of which I've been a part. Well, Pastor Mark, do you think this notion of American exceptionalism makes it more difficult to approach this process of reconciliation? Well, it kind of depends on what we mean by American exceptionalism. Um, if if you're talking about the strand of American exceptionalism that really is a, an offspring of manifest destiny, that somehow God has uh, blessed our nation particularly and given us a particular calling in the world, and and that part of the reason we're so prosperous is because we've been more faithful than other nations and so forth, then I would say, yeah, that's part of the problem right there. Um, and it's, it's simply a way of kind of baptizing our privilege. Ah. And, and yes, I think that's a problem. I think, um, I, I think for too long we've measured God's blessing with material success. And that's been both a violation of some clear scripture as well as to our detriment. And we'll open that all the way up with the encyclical letter in the, a little bit, uh, in a short bit after all. You talking uh, in advance of this interview with me uh, about what Jennifer Harvey brings and what you're exploring is an interesting convergence that where two of the major civil rights leaders were headed. That is Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King. Can you unpackage that a bit so we can understand what what was in the works, what yeah. we've all missed out on in terms of where we are at 2015? 
Yeah, I th you know, I think it's incredibly important for those of us who are only somewhat familiar with the works of Dr. King and even perhaps less familiar with the life and the works of Malcolm X um, to be guided by, I think, a very wise voice, Alan Bosack, who I, I think this was his dissertation that he wrote years ago, coming, out, coming in out of the wilderness, where he talked about the converging paths of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. And with Dr. King, you know, he was a very safe alternative for progressive whites and even for some middle-of-the-road whites when they considered him over and against Malcolm X, whose phrase, by any means necessary, seemed very um, incendiary and, and, and very threatening, uh, whereas Dr. King was always, you know, talking about uh, nonviolent acts and aggressive nonviolence. Um, but Dr. King and Malcolm X were both very dynamic persons. They were changing, and they were growing in their own ways. And one thing that was happening in Dr. King's life was it, he, he started to become very dis, disenchanted um, by the work he was trying to do, particularly with white clergy. So a letter from a Birmingham jail in, in particular speaks about... Um, how disappointed he was that even some of the white liberal clergy were starting to say, well, it's not the right time, and, and, and riot, not riots, but uh, protests were, were not the right means, and we should just let everything happen as they're happening. Um, things are evolving slowly. We should be patient. And he was arguing that they were just not t tracking the real misery in which African Americans were living. And he was... Uh, he was starting to despair a little bit about that. Um, I would not say that he ever left his philosophy of nonviolence, but he certainly was stepping up his philosophy of aggressive nonviolence and being very assertive about it. Malcolm X, on the other hand, um, after his conversion to Islam and his his travels abroad, he. Um, he was starting to adopt a much more universal, universalistic perspective. He broke bread with a lot of white Muslims. And this was meaningful for him. Um, not to say that he was any less poignant in his criticisms, but he was certainly becoming much more universal in his outlook. So in a, in a curious way, as Bozak points out, their, their paths were starting to turn toward one another before each of them was tragically killed. And and that their their assassinations were, I guess, a uh, let's say um, an indication of how very uh, subversive, how uh, d dangerous their respective messages were that uh, left them further out, that more vulnerable to various populations that made them uh, put the targets on their suits, so to speak. So um, I think they're converging and becoming. Uh, more adamant about some very universal class and broader themes, uh, they're, they're both being assassinated as a sign of, of where they may have been sharing a, a, a similarly potent message. And, and I think it was, it's a, we look back on that possibility, that prospect, it, it was a, a, a huge social loss to all of us that there wasn't an advancing of both of their agendas where they might have even converged, had a chance to converge all the more, and what, what a different world it would be today. 
Well, they went the way of all prophets in okay. some respects, and um, and I say that not lightly. That that's that's both tragic and there's some interesting promise there. It's tragic in the sense that um, Malcolm X was really saying something that needed to be heard. He was arguing for reparation rather than just saying, hey, let's just call it all even and start over and, and move on from here. We can't move on from here when some of us are struggling in the mire of poverty. And feeling a uh, death. Right. So he was, I mean, he was saying things that, that politically would have been very hard to, to pull off. Um, and so we lost great voices when we lost them. But there's a curious kind of resurrection motif that goes with prophets. Archbishop Romero was wonderful at oh, stating yeah. this when he said, if I die, my spirit will rise up in the people. And there's, that, that's an interesting thing that happens when the prophet is put to death, either by the empire or the bullet. And that is that the prophet in some ways becomes stronger at that moment. And so has Romero's profile arisen uh, recently too? Sure. In in uh, El Salvador. Well, let's pivot for oh for be first uh, for those of you who've just joined us. My guest is Pastor Mark Davis of the Newport Beach Saint Mark Presbyterian Church, contemplating the practice of religion as we look at Charleston, South Carolina, and move now on to to Pope Francis's encyclical. The uh, letter that w came out, I believe, it's just it's less than a month ago. And as I understand it, uh, that the encyclical, it's the second most important document issued by a pope, the uppermost being the apostolate constitution. In his encyclical letter, which he conceded his conclusion was both joyful and troubling, I quote the pope in, in the English translation, he emphatically address, addresses all people of the world. Is his pivot from Catholics to the world in general typical? No, it's not typical, um, but it's, it, it speaks to the nature of the case. Um, this is a shared planet, and in this planet, it, it just wouldn't, there wouldn't be environmental change if some group decided to change and everybody else decided not to. It's kind of like a friend of mine used to say about a non-smoking section in a restaurant, that having a non-smoking section in a restaurant is like having a non-peeing section in a pool. Um, you know, it's not I think of that, that latter metaphor that when I'm seeing people idling in their cars, just that they're, they're, they're in your doing pool. that. They're in the pool, everybody's pool. Okay. They're in your pool. So, so um, what happened in China? Environmentally is as important to us in the U.S. as as it, as what we do, um, as important to people in the Amazonian basin, and so um, you know this th that concept that this is a shared planet, and that universality of sharing this planet is is actually even more basic to our being than the diverse religions or lack of religion that that we embrace. So I think the Pope quite rightly addressed this encyclical, not just to the faithful and not just to the bishops, but particularly to the entire world as an invitation. And I'd like to hear your reactions, Pastor Mark, as a clergyman to the tone, the structure, and to the content of, I mean, you already talked a bit about the content, but the, also the tone and the structure of this encyclical letter. I mean, the, the, the word choice, the uh, sort of the whole structure uh, of how he led 
first with some easy themes, the way uh, Frederick Douglass led with some easy themes here mm -hmm. in his um, uh, sermons. At, at, uh, so I want to find out how you reacted when the, that rolled out. Well, an encyclical by nature is meant to be a popular letter, so it's not a theological discourse into which one's supposed to go in and get lost. And this pope in particular has a wonderful touch of speaking plainly to the masses. So the tone of the letter, I think, is, is very pastoral. It's hopeful and realistic. So you have incredibly insightful ways of describing the environmental predicament which we face at the same time without ever really losing hope. It would be easy for someone to say we might be past the point of no return. He does not say that. And so it exhibits both his faith in God as creator and sustainer of the world, his hope for humanity as we who participate as wards of the earth, and yet his realism. And it, it's evident also that this man is a scientist. He has a master's degree in science. And it, it, it always makes me chuckle to hear politicians with a degree in something other than science wishing that he'd stop talking about science because he actually knows what he's talking about fairly well. He is coming across as an, a very Renaissance man in that and uh, has the humility to stop in their, their footnotes throughout, the, I can't remember how many, 200-plus uh, points that he puts out in there. I noticed that it's the tone starts with a very, very sort of gentle, on one level, let's all take a breather. He's just trying to get everybody to chill here and think about, you know, what's really important. So I, and I want for you as a theologian to talk to what I saw as a, a sort of a tension between the values of St. Francis and the Judeo-Christian and more specifically the Calvinist kind of dogma. I, there's that tension throughout this whole encyclical letter between those value systems. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it stuck out to me quite as clearly as it did to you. Um, but because when I think of Calvinism, I think more of the writings of John Calvin than some of his really strongly orthodox followers who kind of... I think, took Calvinism. Into in economics. A, in a, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll bring that up. But, you know, the argument that was made years ago by Otto Weber that of the Protestant work ethic was really kind of grounded in observing Calvinism and the vocation doctrine that's so important to Calvin that our work is not just a job that we do 9 to 5, but our work is our vocation. It's a gift and a calling from God that we have. And therefore, when we engage in our work, we do it with as much industry and, and um, energy that we can. And, you know, Calvin saw our work as one of our ways that we praise God and live in response to uh, the debt of gratitude that we have to grace. What happened with that notion, however, is that people thought, well, the, the, the harder you work, the more industrious you are, the more productive you are, and that's a little different, um, then the more faithful you're being. So productivity, 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 it kind of played into the sort of values that were forming around the Industrial Revolution and the Scientific Revolution. So Calvinism kind of became aligned with, if not synonymous with, you know, this kind of endless productivity, which is also what capitalism is about. 
and I am not sure that that was quite the intent that that John Calvin had, but I can see where that seems to be one what one might think about Calvinism. And yes, in that respect, when the Pope, you know, he really talks about limits. He talks about restraining ourselves. He talks about engaging um, business with the the ecology in mind and so forth. That would really hamper us from just this constant bent toward ultimate productivity. Well, it's not a defense, but I'm just trying to give lure people, listeners, to to reading the encyclical letter if they haven't already, and it's ever available all over uh, different platforms. But one quote from early on in the encyclicals, I'm quoting him now, if we approach nature and the environment without this openness to awe and wonder, if we no longer speak the language of fraternity and beauty in our relationship with the world, our attitude will be that of masters, consumers, ruthless exploiters, unable to set limits on their immediate needs. And I think of that sort of Calvinist idea is just that the present value is the highest value, future value doesn't exist, and that we've got to We've got to exploit everything in this time at this moment. So I, that, I look at that, and then there was another one. I'm quoting him. The unbridled exploitation of nature by painting him as domineering and destructive by nature. This is not a correct interpretation of the Bible, Bible as understood by the church. And um, oh, an arbitrary human domination. He keeps circling back to those things. But right. I also thought, getting back to St. Francis, that I think the way in which the Pope approaches this encyclical letter, it is telling us why he chose the name Francis. Sure. He's going to, this is going to be the Pope brand. It's going to be a moniker for what he wants to get done. Right. So this is the first encyclical that he began and published by himself. This is the second one that he published, but the first one began along with Pope Benedict uh, yes. during that transition time. Um, and yes, I think this stamps how he approaches the papacy and I think he gave us a heads up on that when he chose the name of St. Francis. Before I go too far Please. I do want to say that one day we'll have to talk about Calvinism because I, I think we have two very different ways of kind of using that term. But th the beautiful thing about Pope Francis encyclical in my mind is it's reflective of his roots in the, the southern hemisphere. And as such, he, is, he refuses to separate the topics of the environment and the economy. And that is very, very critical. I think for a lot of middle to upper class Americans, we would love to do something about the environment, but we draw the line when it costs us dearly. So we'd love to recycle, and we don't mind putting out two cans instead of just a trash can on garbage day. But we don't want you to raise our taxes, you know, because that's going to help to stop the water basin from emptying or something like that, right? Um, we, we, we do have this feeling that of all the things we can hold as sacred, our wallet is the chief. And, um, you know, it, this really affects us in numerous, numerous ways. It affects the way we think. We think... Um, thinking as a form of technique, think as, of things as a means to an end. Um, when when Saint Francis and now Pope Francis talk about the the being of nature, for example, nature is not simply a, a pack of raw material waiting to be exploited by our value added work, 
But nature is a thing in itself, with its own essence, its own calling, its own preciousness in God's sight, and so forth. And um, that goes directly against the kind of view of nature that came out of the scientific revolution, where knowledge is power, uh, with Francis Bacon, and the whole idea that if we just applied technique to nature, we can bend it to our will um, without, without leaving a mark. And, of course, we leave a mark. We've left a mark. That's what we're dealing with now. There's also a sense in, in capitalism that we don't really have long range in view. Uh, Robert Heilbronner published a wonderful uh, New York Times editorial uh, a year after uh, a book he had written about capitalism. And uh, he entitled it, What Has Posterity Ever Done for Me? Huh. And the whole idea was that in what we call normal economic thinking, the idea of considering the future, the distant future, beyond our children and maybe our grandchildren, but the distant future, we feel as disconnected from that as we do to the very distant ancient past. And we feel no more uh, responsible for that than we do for the distant ancient past. Which is what I'm getting at, that economic system, that present value has more value than future value. And right. that's guiding so many, so much of our behavior. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, and, 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 and what I love about the encyclical is that he talks about the inheritance that our next generations will get from us. And, um, and, and how that is that has moral authority for us. We have to take that into account. Um, that and, and, and just the way that he ascribes essential value to nature, not just value in terms of things we can use. So that's very different from consumeristic economics in which things are only as valuable as we can use them. And he do, it's very sweeping. We talked about how the, this is the broadest audience the papacy has addressed in memory here uh, with um, an encyclical. He does, he exhorts all classes uh, and all classes of consumers, captains of industry, economists and policymakers, and uh, theologians as well. And so I, I think um, it, for me, it, it's as though he's giving the faithful, and I might add the pious, religious cover to get on the bandwagon already. Yeah, so when you address an encyclical to all people, you got a, a pretty wide span to Nobody cover. has a chance to escape from, uh, eyes over here. Right, um, yeah, and, and, and you, part of those people are climate change deniers who are, you know, accessing what I consider pseudoscience as a way of kind of establishing their position. Um, you've got folks who have given up. They say, yeah, you know, I, okay, these changes are happening. They're big. They're massive. There's nothing we can do about it. We're going to go like the dinosaurs in the Stone, you know, Ice Age and all of that. And, um, you know, so there's a kind of despair. There's a denial. Um, as well as, you know, you've got folks who are out there just doing everything they can to try to affect change. And... Um, and, and the worst sin of all that he names is just not caring. And 
When we adopt a vision like the vision of St. Francis, who looked at the sun and called it brother sun, sister moon, right? He would preach to flowers. Um, and the, water. Earth, the earth is, um, is she. And I don't know if it's because in the language he wrote it, it was the feminine pronoun, feminine article, but he, he uses such endearing pronouns for all of these elements. It is endearing. It There's a little danger involved in there, but it is very endearing. And but he's um, got to capture everybody's attention. Well, and and, it's and what he's doing is a, a, he's calling our attention to everything around us. Everything yes. around us has intrinsic value. Um, that happened to me recently. I went to a water conference that where a friend of mine, Chad Myers, who's one of the speakers, and Chad made a comment that just stopped me in my tracks because I've spent years um, going back and forth to El Salvador working with many poor communities, trying to help them get potable water. That's that's the number one need in many of these poor communities. Just and shrinking. Fresh drinking water. And Chad said, well, just remember, we all defecate in clean water. We do. And, yeah, I, look, I love indoor plumbing as much as the next person. But the idea that what they need so desperately is what I use to dispose my waste really speaks to the kind of privilege and economic disparity behind something as precious as the resource of water. And, and and there's just no question that when we talk about the environment, as the Pope has done, we have to include a severe critique of the way we go about economy. And we need a real change in our economic outlook as well as our environmental practices. And so in that kind, we're talking about consumption, defecating in that potable water. And, and he does, he keeps circling back to consumerism and and you talked about we we recycle everything but i the pope is looking at just let's just do with less let's just get down let's enjoy each other's company it's not just the chill in the beginning of the encyclical but throughout he circles back to let's take stock of community and really what it means and how uh, what what joy comes from that how much that enriches our ex existence it's circling back to just making a different choice at the marketplace. Don't go even to the marketplace at, at all to, yeah. together. So for those of you who've just joined us, talking about the Pope's encyclical letter is our inestimable Pastor Mark Davis of the Newport Beach St. Mark Presbyterian Church, and you're enjoying his range. Uh, everything he says it has to do with his observations and his practice. The St. Mark Presbyterian Church has gone to great lengths to address environmental impacts and you're on site you're doing everything you're talking i think you've got waterless urinals so that there's no potable water going through part of that system anyway but uh, you're you've gone to great lengths at your congregation to to minimize all water and energy footprints so you're living it well thank you we um we were declared by the international audubon society as the greenest church in america Whoa. once upon a time um and part of that had to do with, we have a very active group called the Echophelians, um, which comes from, you know, mashed up terms of the Friends of the Earth. And we, we were very attentive when we built our building and our parking lots and so forth to try to strive for using native plants, fixing our parking lot to where the runoff could be reused and so forth, and um, really minimizing as much as possible the carbon footprint that you can when building a new building, as we did. And and that's a tradition that's long been in the church, certainly longer than I have. 
and it's one of the delights I had stepping into this congregation to see the amount of informative, committed folk that we have when it comes to the environment. So that's that's a, a digression, but an intentional one to so that, that what St. Mark's is doing, leading by this kind of an example, it's part of what this encyclical is reminding us all choices we make every minute of the day. So sure. it's a looping back to that. Um, and I, I wanted to return. To, there's a whole heading, and it's different, I think, for the Pope to, and it's, I guess, a part of his Jesuit tradition and his allowing, again, for reform theology to operate again uh, with a nod from the, his papacy that under his heading and under number 232 because it doesn't really go by page it goes by number the heading is civic and political love uh, these community actions i'm quoting him these community actions when they express self-giving love can also become intense spiritual experiences and that's i think it's a new day for the papacy to to tilt in that secular, what those secular opportunities are, which have their spiritual payoff. Right. Well, you know, John Calvin once said that... Uh, <laughs> Back to Calvin, great. <clears throat> well, one th- once John Calvin said that the highest calling, you would expect him to say it'd be a pastor or a jurist, as he was, but he once said politicians had the highest calling because th- their decisions were all about the common good. That's what the polis, the city behind politics, is all about. One thing I really appreciate about the encyclical is that it pays attention to all the motivations that draw us into being concerned about the environment. Native and and Celtic spiritualities have one way of drawing people in that are different from the way that the Christian tradition has talked about it. Catholic tradition, Reformed tradition the believers and non-believers. One of the most fruitful conversations I ever had about the environment and the book of Genesis was with a student that I had at the University of Iowa. He was flunking everything, including my class, and I asked him to come in and talk about it. And the reason was because he was so involved in an environmental activism group that he was just forsaking everything else. You know, he was 20 years old and kind of was okay with doing that. And um, we got to talking about, you know, his commitment, his passion. And then right in the middle of it, he looks at me and says, you know, you're an enigma. And I said, well, in what respect? He said, I've never met a minister who cares about the environment. And I was just really shocked because... That's shocking. Yeah, it was shocking. And, 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 and certainly not true. He needs to get out more. But it was reflective of his background in a very conservative kind of church. Okay. where concerns like he had were not welcomed. You know, for them, the world was going to end any time now. Jesus was coming back, and who cares? It's just going to burn up, and we're all going to go to heaven and be okay. And to find someone who was a person of faith, a clergy person on top of that, who was concerned about the fate of the world, was very different for him. But in our conversations, you would think that if I had taken the uh, traditional kind of churchy evangelism route, I would have just been convincing him that he needs to listen to the Bible more. Right. But I asked him, I said, listen, why are you so impassioned about the environment? Why? Just just what's motivating you? You're, You're throwing away your college studies to do this. Why? And, um... He gave me, his response was all about the inherent meaning and beauty of the world. And I said, dude, 
That's theology. You're talking my language here. This is the creation story. So just read it as if someone like you were writing it. And you'd see that somebody is loving this creation every step along the way. So it's a nice time when we can have people who are impassioned about the environment and those who are impassioned about their faith learn from one another. And I see that kind of openness in the Pope's letter to the scientific community, to the advocacy community, as well as to the faith community. So what kind of uh, wiretapping, are you, uh, theological wiretapping, are you doing with the other religions? Uh, let's say, uh, I mean, there. I know the Presbyterian uh, platforms have quite a while been talking about environmental policy and uh, shrinking one's uh, impacts on on Mother Earth's resources and that kind of a thing. But what has the more, the clergy that this student who's funking out, the environmental activist, the clergy he's referring to, how are they responding to the encyclical letter? Well, it's kind of hard to say. I, um, I grew up in that tradition. I grew up in the Pentecostal Holiness Church. And so I heard plenty of fire and brimstone along the way. I also heard that the rapture is right around the corner all the time. And so there was no reason to have theologically any long-term investment in the world. I find that to be a very hideous approach to theology and to the world. And that's part of the reason why I'm no longer in that tradition. There's a whole interview there. Yes. Yeah. One day. That's what my book, Left Behind and Loving It, is about yes, as well. Yes, right. But there's general suspicion about the Pope anyway in those traditions. So I don't think they feel compelled from their tradition necessarily to uh, respond one way or another. But I would say, you know, within evangelicalism, there are some very progressive voices. And both with regard to Roman Catholicism, but also particularly with regard to the environment. And um, in fact, some of the better motivating groups on the environment have come out of some of the more progressive evangelical churches. So I would say in that respect, many of us are finding this pope to be amazingly uh, candid, speaking our language, not at all what we often think about popes and their encyclicals. And so it's really tearing down a lot of stereotypes. I think partly it reflects from his personality, but partly from his, um, again, being from the global south, growing up in uh, with an intimate understanding of poverty. There's just something really powerful about virtually everything he says. Amen. Well, I wanted to uh, give you a chance to talk a bit about how St. Mark's has taken up the charge. Each January is the St. Mark's Peace and Justice Commission, along with involvement in other advocacy efforts regarding human trafficking and gun control and the Middle East peace. So there was the Great Decisions discussion, an eight-week session, uh, Great Decisions Foreign Policy discussion that was in Mar- in last January, and I know that you have plans in the fall for a very special form, and I'd like to let listeners know that I have every intention of covering that with your colleagues and you so that our listeners can have an, uh, know of the opportunity to participate in those forums. I know it's in the work, but I don't know if you want to say anything more about the Peace and Justice Commission and what that might be doing in terms of your inclusiveness in the congregation at this point or as we close with that last, that bit of uh, information. Okay. Well, kind of mashing together a lot of things that are 
is central to the heart yes. of the St. Mark community. One is our Peace and Justice Commission, which which is the commission itself is peopled by a lot of folks who have been doing justice work for a long time, working with farm workers, working with the oppressed, working on behalf of victims of human trafficking and and so forth. And we have just a very strong commission who, who kind of help articulate the conscience of the congregation really well. Part of that work is this Great Decisions Program, which uses a curriculum that's put out by the U.S. Foreign Policy Association, and um, it's very, very well done. It looks uh, at the economic and political, the military situation around the world. And it, for us, it's, a, it's an eight-week program where we meet on Monday nights, and um, we start with watching a, a brief video that gives an overview, and then we have a presentation by someone, usually from within the community or the congregation, who has some particular uh, connection to the issue. And then we have roundtable discussions. And I'd say some nights we're all just kind of sitting around exchanging our ignorance, but other nights, you know, you find yourself next to someone who was a Peace Corps worker in Mexico for six years, and you find out that they've got a uh, an insight into my way of viewing things that I didn't have. It becomes a very, very helpful exchange on many occasions. And what's nice is that's not just a church thing. I would say there were times last year that at least 40%, if not maybe a, a bit more, were not from the church community, but from our surrounding contextual community. Well, we'll do everything we can to make that forum known and well well known here. So that connection, I, I know some of those people, that they've, they come from a long way. That's why you're, you're drawing uh, from activists uh, that are connected throughout the, the Southland. And so that's something I wanted to make known in the introduction. So, well, Mark Davis, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been great. That was Pastor Mark Davis of the Newport Beach St. Mark Presbyterian Church and I will close with a, just an announcement here. Closing out with Nina Simone. As I bring Ask a Leader to a close, I'd like to let you know that next week, UCI Director Eli Simon and Guest Director Beth Lopes will, um, they've committed to giving us a taste of the summer's New Swan Theater offerings. We had a little bit of a uh, change up on the schedule a couple weeks ago, but they'll be back and we'll, we'll hear directly from them. As well, we'll hear from Orange County Museum of Art curator, Barbara Pollock about a current exhibit entitled My Generation Young Chinese Artists. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Nothing in Sunlight from the sky and humming birds.